0: Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Dan, thanks for having me, man. I love your, I love the jazz intro music to your, to your podcast. Sounds a lot oh, like a. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I like the, the surf rock for yours as well. I'm a big, yeah. big surf rock guy. So I appreciate that. And, <laughs> yeah, man. And I actually have a, a funny story because I, I know you're based out of Greenville. Yeah. And I once flew to the wrong Greenville. I flew to Greenville, North Carolina. And I was, <laughs> was going to, I was supposed to visit a, a cousin of mine in Nashville. And It's a
1: little bit far
0: away. Yeah, so I was like, okay, Asheville, North Carolina. There's a Greenville, North Carolina. He told me right. to fly to Greenville. That must be the same one. Wrong one, there right? Yeah. So I got there, and they're like, "Yep, uh, this happens about once a week." <laughs> I rented a car, and then I flew. I mean, I drove all the way across the state. I passed by Charlotte, where I had a layover early in the day. Early in the day, so I passed by exactly where I had been. Drove across the whole state, and then got to Asheville. So, dude,
1: that is funny. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: the uh, Greenville, North Carolina, and South Carolina are not the same place. Not at all. And by the way, there's nothing in Greenville, North Carolina. There's <laughs> no. And a, there's and it was a good barbecue place where I ate. Well, that's about <laughs> it. Dude, that's i I'm sorry. Yeah. I I didn't I guess, yeah, it happens once a week. That's pretty funny. So. Yeah. So if you if you have uh, like dumber family members like myself, you're gonna have to put a little asterisk and specify the state in <laughs> question Greenville. That is so funny. I I never thought about that, but yeah, there's a lot more to do in Greenville nowadays
1: than in the North Carolina version.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. That whole little, you know, part of the world where we have Asheville and Greenville seems like there's a lot more going on there. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a hopping place, so yeah yeah for sure so so anyway you you are are doing a lot on the accounting front with with agencies and it sounds like you're doing a million things you have thrivecast the businessology show we yep. were cpas so i'd love to to learn a little bit more about your background and how you got to the point of, of advising um, yeah. some agencies at this point
1: yeah so it um my dad started our it was a cpa firm just a generalist firm in ninety seven and i I've been in the public accounting as a cpa for over twenty years and so i'd came from another firm started running my dad's firm in 2003 and th- and I've just always been entrepreneurial so I got you know into this CPA firm model and started trying a bunch of stuff cuz that's what entrepreneurs do and you know busted a bunch of stuff Did- didn't really know what I was doing at first um but then figured out some stuff through that, uh, started to figure out. Business coaching, that was a big part of, that's a big part of what we do now. Consulting is a big part. And so we we rolled into those models, just testing how to serve people in different ways. And then started narrowing our market as we got a few agencies, we kind of started to double down on that. And so now, eight, you know, we've been really uh, focused eight or nine years on the agency space solely. And we're not only in that tax accounting and uh, support area, controllership, all that. uh, We're also in the growth consultancy. We go on site and we restructure agencies for people and then coach them. And those are about a year long engagement typically when we do that. So uh, it's been a a long journey of trying a bunch of stuff. And uh, we just, we love the creative space. We love creative people. That's what we are. And so we want to hang out with them and they, you know, they, just like all of us, they screw up their businesses a lot. So, because <laughs> they're just, they just think there's a, a lot of fun stuff to go try. And as you grow and scale, structure becomes really important. So, we help them understand structure and leadership um, and things like that. So, a lot of fun. Yeah,
0: yeah there, there's so much to go in there, into, in, into there rather. And uh, I, I guess one thing is like, you know, similar to, to my business when, when I first started years ago, we were working with different sectors and then we kind of doubled down on agencies because that was an area that yeah. I knew previous lives quite well and enjoyed working with. What, what was it for you guys? What, what made you decide to focus on agencies?
1: Yeah, it, it, it was probably a couple of things. Um, we were a brick and mortar firm at the time, meaning we, we had an office in Greenville, South Carolina that people would drive up to. And again, we had a general type firm, so everybody would drive up. And then we started getting some agency clients that were across the country. And they didn't care where we were. And I thought, wow, that is interesting. (laughs) You know, and we got those through some referrals because we had some local agencies and they referred us people across the country and they never asked, wait, how are we going to do this across the country? They didn't give a crap, really. So um, I thought that is interesting. So actually, it was, you know, we enjoyed working with agencies. They're a service-based creative company like ours is. We're a service-based creative company the way we run it so the models are really similar so as we learn to grow our business we've we're also learning how to grow other creative type businesses like agencies Um, so our models matched we like those kinds of people which are kind of entrepreneurial a little bit you know a little bit of loose cannons and they they need a lot of guidance and care Uh, and then at the same time we wanted to become a virtual firm and so all that coupled together is you know we did we um, we shut down the firm over five years ago and just went virtual. And that, you know, that was a whole journey, screwed up a whole bunch of stuff doing that. Um, but you learn a lot when you when you do that. So, so there were a couple factors that had us double down and focus on the digital agency space.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I've mostly worked with agencies in my career and in this business. So, my frame of reference beyond that is is limited. I feel kind of like a fish in water, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about what what do you see agencies doing right or wrong compared to the other industries you've worked with in the past when it comes to accounting or structuring?
1: Yeah so you know if we if we were to focus on structuring really um, a service-based business especially digital agencies a lot of the tangible a lot of the things you deliver are not tangible things a lot of times they are digitally related uh, or they're intangible uh, strategy and consulting and so when you have a business that um, is like that, it does, there's no product or anything, so to speak. It is all digital. When you have businesses like that, really leadership becomes huge. That becomes really, really big. So how leaders form, how, how leaders behave uh, as they grow, how they build leadership teams and how they lead people, how they lead creative people, which are, again, our loose cannons, becomes so important. Uh, to delivering these things on a very consistent basis, which produces higher value so um, and so i don 't know that that 's not very meaty, but there's a leadership is is a huge thing they all are struggling with, and a lot of times you find it uh, at various growth ceilings at various uh, team sizes a lot of times you can point this stuff out like you know five to eight team that 's where an owner one owner one creative owner typically can 't meet the needs of all of those team and so A leadership team starts to become a need and so they put a person in place that is kind of a leader proxy in their place to care for the team while they're doing other things like the visionary components, CEO components, sales components typically still at that that size. And that's where they get mixed up. They don't teach that leader how to lead. The team doesn't follow that person the way they followed the CEO. Uh, And then, you know, other, you know, 12 to to 18 is where you run into another growth ceiling. And so, and the the growth ceilings you're running into at those levels is typically you need more structure and, you know, creative people don't want structure. And so you need more accountable processes and recurring rhythms. These are the things that bring safety to creative spaces where there's really not a lot of tangible things. It's a lot of talking and it's a lot of deliverables uh, in a digital world and so the people involved are the key and so, right. so how you put leaders in place so those are some those are some components to structure that we find a lot of problems with among many others
0: yeah there's there's so much we could go into there and we're not going to have any easy answers for right. how to become a leader right and, right and, right but one thing you mentioned is recurring rhythms. I yeah. go into that a little bit more like the agencies that you might be working with that have this really consistent recurring rhythm. What are they doing differently? What's their process yeah. like? That's a,
1: man, that is a, that is a great question because I don't think a lot of people talk about uh, this thing called recurring rhythms, but what we find in creative businesses is people who uh, habitually do the same thing all the time, every time, what that does is it brings a lot of safety to a team. And so One thing we always see typically when we're working with a business is that there's no leadership rhythms. And basically, what that means is um, there might be a visionary or integrator component. These are words spoken of in a book called Rocket Fuel, uh, Visionary Integrator. Um, And so, we don't find the visionary integrator are having their weekly meetings together like they should. Uh, And then they're not meeting with their leadership team on a weekly basis, they're skipping those meetings. And so, when you put those meetings in place, And we teach our clients the things they're supposed to be doing in those meetings. Um, And when they start doing those things on a recurring basis and they stop skipping them, uh, the business starts to just chug and gain some traction, start to move forward and start to gain traction and really uh, build something that's actually scalable. And when we see these rhythms, um, then we find that uh, the team looks at the leaders doing these things on a recurring basis, and they start to feel some sense of safety um, in the business that they're in. So it becomes a lot less chaotic, and that's the goal of rhythms. Rhythms are always meant to cool down chaos and growth, because chaos is always an inhibitor to growth. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So when we're working with people, we always find there is a form of some type of chaos. And it's being created
0: by the owners or the leaders, typically. Yeah, and I know that I've done that in my business plenty of times. <laughs> just oh, me, me chaos, Dude, right? Here. Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can feel it happening after the fact, and it's like everything's going great, and you just throw a grenade into the one-room base. Yep, that's right. And onwards from there. So, so with that in mind, I, I really love that. So, as opposed to just trying to arbitrarily maximize this or that, you know, a lofty thing. It's more about reducing chaos and, and getting into consistent, consistent rhythms. So you mentioned, you know, the idea of the, the visionary or the owner kind of meeting with the leadership team weekly or consistently. And then there's certain things that you recommend mm-hmm. that that person does during those meetings. Can you give any any tangible examples of what those things might be? And I'm sure it varies, but what you're seeing, you know, to work really well, the things that should be covered during yeah.
1: So so yeah, that could vary big time between different uh, agencies and creative service based companies. But a lot of that are the visionary related components. So it is leadership things that are being put in place. Like what new processes do we need, or what are the things that we need to be building to teach our team like you're, you might be dealing with what are the training programs that new creative people need as they come into our company mm-hmm. uh, what do they need to understand um and and they're so they're talking about building processes installing processes they're talking about restructuring their company like who's in the wrong seat who's in the right seat uh, whose role needs to change how do we need do we need to create a new role um, and then they're just following up on a lot of the work that leaders have to do, which are a lot of to-dos that any team member has. Um, but what they're always working on, their their to-dos, their work is always at a strategic higher level. Um, and it's really just the the different types of mentality. So team members have an individual contributor mentality, which is they're in the trenches doing their work. Leaders have a greater good mentality, and so. It's two different levels of mentality. A greater good mentality is not a, I have a bunch of work to do. It is what needs to happen that's good for this company, which may be things I don't even like, I don't even want to do, but it's actually having a view of the company and a responsibility to the company as a leader that you have to do these things for the greater good of the company. And the team typically are not, team are not meant to grow companies. Team don't grow companies, they actually produce revenue. That's what they do. And so they're always focused on their job. And so if you're in a leader meeting, you're typically doing a higher level strategic activity where you're thinking about what is good for this company. You're not thinking about your job necessarily and the things you have to do. You're thinking, what do we need to do as a company to fix stuff and move the company forward and serve clients in a better way? Um, so it could be there could be so many things that are in those leader meetings. So, I don't
0: know, Dan, maybe that led, led to some other questions about the specifics that could be in there. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's lots, there's a lot to go into and that's, that's helpful. I appreciate it. Um, one, one thing that I've encountered in my business and the lots of our clients encounter is that the feedback loop can be really long, right? So you might have a small restructuring decision. I want this person to do this thing. I want this person to serve this client or whatever. And then you might not know if it works until months down the road and then you might not know what it working actually looks like or what factor caused this or that. So I guess, you know, to add another tough question, is there a way that you see your better clients um, running experiments or thinking about experiments differently than others?
1: Oh yeah. So um, there's some level of speed that has to change as you become larger. Um, So the larger the team, the more complex your services, the more varied your services the faster you're growing, all of these add chaos to your company. And so what it, what that means is any experimental decisions to change your company have to go slower depending on these complexities. Again, with the goal that any injection of chaos into a service-based creative company inhibits growth. So if that's a foundational principle, then everything we're doing is to not add chaos because chaos is already part of creative service growth. So any change or restructural change has to be done at a slower pace when there's already complexity adding to chaos, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So so when we're working with a client, we're assessing, all right, you've got some complex components to your business. So if you want to make this restructure, we're going to do it over six months instead of two. Yeah. And, and the reason why is because there's a lot of orders of messaging that you have to do to a creative team. That's a huge component in growth is Right orders of messaging. And when you get the orders of messaging wrong, you inject more chaos because team are like, what the F is going on? (laughs) And so you have to release information at various pacing levels so that the team are led to the place that they need to be led to without additional chaos. Um, And and I think a a lot of wrong messaging is done because leaders think team can take any kind of information and sort through it, but they can't. So leaders have to be very careful with the type of strategic information they release to the team. Because if you release information without context, bam, chaos is a result uh, because you, because we're service-based companies and humans will always seek to make sense of the context within the world in which they work and live. And And you have to add the context, the accurate context so that they can work appropriately. And so when you find leadership teams that are just, they're just vomiting all of this strategic information, we might do this, like we might go buy a business. They mention the CEO mentions that in the hall to the creative director. It blows up the company and they don't realize they're doing this. And so the leaders are typically piping this chaos into the team. And so you have to slow them down and go, no, you have to do messaging in a particular order so that you don't inject chaos into your company.
0: So there's a lot to all that, I know. But that's, that's really great. And that, that definitely hit me where I live. Right. <laughs> like right yeah, now,
1: it, I, it hits me where we live too. Yeah,
0: yeah. Cause and a lot of this stuff is about, is about discipline and about yes. uh, not falling prey to recency bias, right? Yeah. This, this oh, thing man. has happened. This explosion yes. just happened. And I want to deal with it. I want to feel like I'm in control. That's so true. Blowing around in the wind. So I'm gonna make so up true. this marching order, I'm gonna send it out to the team and we're gonna fix this. That's right. Uh, so one thing that I'm curious about is is you know, how how can leaders be more disciplined? How can you make sure that you're not just that you that you are, you know, not falling prey to your your worst urges there, I guess.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's um we we would say probably one of the best ways is that leadership teams, especially CEOs, especially founder CEOs, they're a particular problem. <laughs> Founders are the people who believe they can do anything, uh, and they can, and that's the problem. What leadership teams need is restraint. Really, they need a little bit of restraint in their lives. So, uh, and there are structures to do that. There's a the the book Rocket Fuel that I mentioned has a a structure called a visionary integrator, which are two components that really help a creative services company grow really well. And the visionary is typically the CEO, the founder CEO is the visionary typically. And the structure is you—you you, they vet each other. So the CEO can actually, can no longer pump any information into a company. It all gets pumped in through the integrator. And so the integrator becomes a regulator, so to speak. And the integrator is a certain kind of mind. They're a process-oriented mind, a detail-oriented person. They think in terms of rollout in effective ways to a team. And so the CEO vomits all of these ideas and visions to the integrator, which get ordered in certain ways. And so that creates restraint in that CEO founder's life. And, and it means they're not pouring this vomit of strategic ideas into a company, which create all kind of chaos. They're doing it through a person who can order it and release bites of information at the right times when they're actually going to act on some of that information. So there have to be structures and typically some kind of restraint, typically to that founder, that CEO, to really create a place that really will scale and grow in a healthy way.
0: Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And one thing I'd love to hear your take on um, is is creating a saleable asset. Because the more that I learn about the agency space, the more models that I see of of what's potentially saleable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would love to hear your your experience with that and what you've seen work. Yeah. So uh, the work
1: we've seen typically is in adding uh, a key person on the team to the partnership to to the uh, to the ownership. Um, so that's a that's a key way that we've seen people add and expand. Um, that's the safest way to do it. I think buying agencies or selling agencies uh, that's pretty tricky because uh, they're really they're they're about the people that are generating a lot of this, these creative ideas. And so, I think one way to sell an agency really well is to is to make it not necessarily centered around you know rock stars. So a rock star or a superstar culture. It's typically not, not a business you want to buy or be involved in because these people are kind of buttholes a lot of times. <laughs> so, And it, it doesn't make a business sellable because it's only centered around those people. So if, you, so if you're buying an agency or something like that, you want to do a lot of research and interviews with those teams and find out what kind of culture it is. And if it's a especially if it's bigger, if it's a structured, more ordered culture and it it's it produces a lot of consistency in service. That is, there's not huge swings in variety of services being generated and how they're being generated. You're going to find a business that can actually uh, it can actually grow and and serve clients without some of those key people now. But these agencies are still always going to need key people. Uh, you know, to produce the revenue, the consistency, and especially as you get larger, produce the leadership that's needed, that these creative uh, teams need. Um, but I, I don't know. It, it's just hard to sell creative service businesses, but I know it does happen. Um, you just, I think you would just want to make sure you're buying something that is structured and ordered and, you know, it has a lot of consistency to it. The team feel pretty cemented into a culture. They feel pretty safe because of the rhythms that they follow and feel. Uh, and those are going to be healthier businesses to invest in, I think.
0: Right, right. And and from, you know, an accounting perspective and maybe beyond that, how would you describe the importance of, of a specialization? Because that's something we talk a lot about on the show. Uh, drew, who's been on ours and I think has been on yours as well, yep. yep. talks a lot about this as well. Um, I'd love to hear your perspective on it.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, specialization or really targeting that some narrowness of a particular industry, uh, or or a narrowness in a service that you provide, you know, um, I, yeah, that is definitely key to becoming more of an expert, being perceived as an expert. Um, and when you're when you're perceived as an expert, your value increases, and so your price just follows your value. Typically, is kind of the orders of those. You're an expert, your value's higher. Price, you know, more valuable experts just are paid more. Um, narrowness of a market, <clears throat> excuse me. It's definitely a way to do that, um, but there's risk in narrow too, um, you know, and that's more that's a more positioning, right? If you position narrowly, you've just hacked off most of the market that you could serve. Um, now, you get to be an expert as a result of it, but typically what we find service-based companies do is when they narrow their market, they fail to increase the marketing activities to offset the risk that they've just incurred. And the narrowness of this very mini market that they're now going after. So if their marketing sucks and they're not letting people know about it, now they're not going to this small swath of the market that they've decided they only want to serve. So you you just, a lot of things have to be in order before you really go narrow. But specialization does produce greater value and more money. It really does. If you do it
0: right. And I'm glad you're seeing the same things we are as well. And we, we do a lot of surveying. We're probably surveying, you know, hundreds of agencies a year. And that's mm. consistently uh, one, one of the biggest trends is just lack of self-investment. You know, sometimes than two percent of, oh, yeah. of revenue is going to, to sales and marketing. Oh, yeah. And then back to my fish and water problem, you know, it's that's that's the market I know. How would you compare that to other industries that you're familiar with in terms of, of sales and marketing investment mm. between agencies and others?
1: Yeah. Well, that's hard because we don't serve other ones. <laughs> but, but you know, I, I guess I, I would say this, sell, sales and marketing, I mean, that those are key really to any business. Uh, there, there's going to be, there's always going to be a component of letting the world know you exist, the, you know, the persuasion aspects of letting people know they should approach you. And then there's that personal, intimate negotiation and skills that you need as in sales. To kind of bring them into the fold as a client, and and I I can't imagine any business that wouldn't and shouldn't be investing in that, unless I don't know, unless it's just some weird business model I don't know about that just people are beating the door down to get in, um, you know. But yeah, I think it's just it would be huge for anybody. I, I think, but as you know, Dan, I think a lot of people waste a lot of money doing those things. Um, they just don't do it well and they just try to, they just, you know, pump money into a market and it just doesn't produce a lot of the results it needs
0: to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something that can happen. Um, with that in mind, one question I have is what do you learn? What are you learning about the agency world that continues to surprise you? Cause I, I learn mm-hmm. things every day just oh, by yeah. focusing on one market. There's yeah. so much to learn that I'm always, you know, uh, just dumbfounded that so many agencies can focus on dozens of different industries and expect to do well. Yeah. Um, that's another topic, but yeah, I'd love to learn a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know,
1: we've been in the, I mean the di- the digital agency space is really not an old profession, you know, if you think about it. So um, when you find people that have been, you know, some of our clients have been doing it for 20 and more years, those are just long-term veterans and we we've been in it a while to see a lot of, a lot of changes. And and I think, I think what some, of the, some of the things we've seen are agencies can grow and some of them can go in-house. So they can even, agencies can be purchased to go in-house, you know, to, to big companies. So you have like Facebook uh, will, will, will purchase, you know, its own external agency and bring it in-house. And now it's their own internal agency. And so we've seen that happen. Then we've seen times where big, you know, superstars go out on their own. So they're freelance, but they're making a quarter of a million dollars a year. They're not like you may think freelance is, where you're just starting and not making a lot of money. You're finding these bigwigs really are on their own, and people do reach out to them and hire them. Um, and so I, I think I think what we're seeing now is definitely there's a commoditization to digital to the digital space, and I think people are foolish that they don't recognize it. And when there's any kind of commoditization in a space, you have to make decisions as a company to move up up the value chain or you have to move down the value chain to compete in the commodity market. So you have to make choices. You can't play around. And so we see successful agencies really moving up market to high value by really focusing on the discovery and strategy in a huge part of how they deliver their services so that a lot of the marketing uh, and maybe website and, you know, the design assets, those are a little less what they focus on. Those are just support services to the strategy, the discovery um, of of helping people start to solve their problems. That's where, as you move up market, that's where you're going to find the money is going because things are being commoditied on the, on the logo design and asset deliveries of websites and things. And so you kind of have to pick. Uh, and one business model is different. Than the other one. Those are two different business models. Um, a commodity model is a huge efficiency speed model, and a strategy model is a very slow,
0: methodical uh, mind model, basically. Yeah, yeah. Everything you said definitely maps to our experience here at, at Sales Schema. And what, what we see is the agencies that are winning are the ones that are very specific on their what and their who, right? So nice. the problem they're solving and who yep. they're solving it for. You but the it. how is potentially anything. Right, So I think that's that's what we're seeing as well and I that's think right. that going down market is really hard to do unless you're like by the cheapest and most efficient and you've got right. a lot of competition at the bottom.
1: <laughs> that's right. Oh man, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would always tell people not to go that way but uh, I think a lot of people are doing it and they don't know they're doing it and yeah. that is super dangerous. <laughs> you right. you need to know where you're playing or you're gonna get eaten alive.
0: Yeah, exactly and, and the thing is a lot of them are thinking are, are investing a similar amount of resources in their sales process to win a much smaller level of business because they think that that's what their market wants. They,
1: wow. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. What you invest yourselves in marketing in to achieve and get finally in the door, that matters.
0: Right, right. And then uh, there's that sort of uh, no man's land that Peter Thiel writes about, right, where you can... Yeah be dead in the water because your you know your cost of acquisition's higher than you stand to make essentially.
1: That's right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean are you going after markets you don't really that can't can't produce or consume any of the value you can output. Uh, yeah. And if they don't have the price to invest in it, they're not going to buy the thing you think you want to sell them. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So so, so I know we're getting kind of towards the end of the of the time so I'd love to learn more about um what you guys are actually doing, you know, what the process looks like when you're working with a new agency client and and how you're helping them. Yeah. So basically what we do is um, every every client
1: that comes to us, they're assigned a three-person team, basically. Uh, So they have a customer ally, which is that technical CPA most of the time that leads the relationship. And then we have an accounting specialist that does all that back-end, fast-moving accounting data integration and all that. Technology management, and then we have a project manager that's alongside our team, making sure everything is consistently being achieved and output and produced. Uh, Because a lot of our scoped contracts and SOWs are really, really pretty high. They're they're pretty complex because a lot of times we're bringing a lot of structure to bigger agencies, so we're doing a lot of process builds typically around new, more complex pieces of software. Um, that are accounting type software. You know, We're turning their financial flow into a digital flow. And so we got to restate how we're doing that with processes. So we do process building. Um, And then we have a management team internally in the firm that supports the team that's doing that work. Um, So a lot of times it takes, I mean, it may take a couple of months to get an agency into our firm. And then we do a kickoff with them and then it'll, it'll be a three-month ramp-up. It'll be a pretty high-level ramp-up of us learning their systems, you know, taking a little bit of control out of their hands, trusting us to kind of lead those. Uh, and we have a pretty hefty team that's really behind them. A lot of times four or five people, a lot of times in that first three months are going to be on that client serving them and making sure we're getting everything in order. So it's, it's pretty bulky service. Um, and it just takes a lot to get embedded into all that and kind of get our hands in the middle of it and then make sure we all know who's doing what now. Um, right. And then we start rolling through the, you know, the accounting payroll tax and
0: all the things that go with that service. And typically we do it in a 12 month contract. Yeah, that makes sense. And and there's obviously plenty of agencies that probably know they need something like that. And then there's there's a lot of others that I imagine you run into. Where there's an owner and then and there's they're saying, you know, I'm having these leadership meetings. We have somebody that's doing the books every week or every other week, and we have these strategic plans. And this isn't something we we you know are thinking about or think we need. And then my guess is once you dig into their stuff, you're like, wow, there's massive inefficiencies. There's all yeah. these things that need to be done better and could be yeah. done better. Yeah. Um, could you dig into that a little bit? Like, what are those things where? you know, the the skeptical person that thinks they have an order probably doesn't. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I I guess where we run into that is where somebody does come to us and tells us their problem and and how they need to fix it. Typically, they're the people that don't know (laughs) what's going on. Um, And so we kind of just won't deal with that. That's too much work to surmount a lot of that mental block. Mm -hmm. Um, So we work best with clients who go, man, I got stuff messed up. I actually don't know what it is. And I'm really ready to listen and have you guys help us uh, know what's going on. But um, typically, you, you'll you know you need help if you have a lot of chaos um, and we find people who are growing revenue, but their profit is stable or decreasing. They got some problems. There are some things messed up in their model. That's a model issue. And it could be a lot of parts of the model. Uh, it could be structure of the process, the team, the project management surrounding the team. It could be a sales and marketing issue. It could be a pricing issue. Could be leadership issues. There's a lot of stuff bound up in when you find revenues increasing and profitability stable or decreasing. Uh, that is an issue, um, and so there's glutted messes up in there that need to be uh, cleared up. But uh, we basically uh, we'll, we we do we we have a particular process of consulting we go through where we interview leader teams, we interview key people on the team, uh, and we come back with reporting. Um, in the way that we do it to report the issues we find, and a lot of times we'll end a lot of that work with a team retreat, which will restructure the team in full and and seek buy-in from the full team. Uh, And the result of all of that work is really to get everybody in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. And because when you get that done, you man, you have a powerhouse company that can really go anywhere as long as the leaders stay intact, kind of point, you know, with that vision, you know, and helping people understand where they're going, uh, focus everybody in the right direction. So, yeah. um, so Dan, I don't know if I, I actually no, yeah, that, that was question.
0: great. <laughs> that's, that's really helpful. Appreciate yeah. it. Um, and there's, we could probably do five shows out of that. Oh yeah. But, but one rabbit trail I'd love to go down a little bit because we are, you know, kind of a sales focused organization and podcast and so on is, is uh, pricing psychology. And I know that's something you've yeah. written a lot about. Yeah. So, so I'd love it if you can go into that a little bit. Like what are the your better clients or what are you guys doing that you're finding to work when it comes to yeah. approaching pricing psychology?
1: Yeah. Typically what we find um, pricing that works is really um, agencies who stop assigning price to some kind of service. Uh, they feel the freedom to break away from assigning, you know, in whatever pricing spreadsheet they're coming up with. If they're assigning a service to a particular price. Um, if they break out of that mold, we're going we're gonna to see them start to really gain the benefits of value pricing um, where they actually truly are pricing based upon what that client perceives the value in their service. Um, and p- people lock themselves in and they think, I don't know, some of them feel ethically bad about the fact that the price is not aligned with a logo or the price is not aligned with a strategy meeting or the price is not aligned with a website. Um, there's value attached in a lot of things. There's value in your model if your model is more ordered and structured, if it has a, if it has a discovery component around the strategy of what solves your problem. Uh, these are highly valuable components to your price and should be part of your price. Um, project management makes you very valuable. There should be project management components to your price. Um, and people leave those out because all they do is price the thing they're given the client when there's a million other things to price, for example, the client's fearful. They're leaving another agency coming to you. They can price the price taking away the fear. They can price the guarantee of this working for them. Um, and when, when we find people breaking away from trying to make a price always match a thing they're giving somebody, a lot of times it's the presence of your mind in a room performing strategic activities and conversations. I mean, you could charge 20 grand for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, and it, but I think there's, there's fear and courage, right? You're fearful to do it. And it takes a lot of times courage to overcome fear. You can still walk into a sales meeting with a price pitch um, and you have the fear that you're not valuable, but you have to have the courage to surmount that and, tr- and attach a price to something that is valuable to that client. And that's very hard
0: stuff to do especially in this world where there's so many agencies that have been giving it away for free for, for so long yep. as yep. their MO. And, uh, you know, I had lunch with, with an agency the other week and they were typically investing five figures in a, in a proposal. You know, mm. Wow. In terms of, of time and work and re- you know, rarely putting a, a price tag on it and finally yeah. now getting away from that. And it's very scary because, you know, changing that is sort of going against the grain of their particular industry and other and, and, and companies aren't used to that. Yeah. I think,
1: I think as a creative agency space, I would say if there's a really solid agency with great service that's doing strategic work and some kind of discovery up front, they're probably already underpricing. That's just a general principle. I don't know if that's true for everybody, but they're generally probably not pricing all of that valuable work and the assessment, the discovery, the strategy and how value it is. That's the most valuable stuff. Actually that's that can become the bulk of your price really unless the team generating a lot of the logos design and all the meetings that go into delivering the milestones of delivery of these online digital assets. So, um, and I think they're not, some people aren't even pricing those. So just if you're one of those agencies that really cares, right, and you care about the strategy and the solutions and the problems, you're probably one that is underpriced and a market would possibly pay more for the value that you are because you're undervaluing what you are doing for your client problem
0: yeah and i think that's probably going to hit home for for a lot of our listeners um i guess to dig into that a little bit more is there any tangible way of of structuring the offer uh that you've seen work really well like one challenge that a lot of our clients come across is they have these great meetings and then the their prospects kind of blow away in the wind because they don't have a process to put people into and then figuring out what that process is creates a lot of hand-wringing um. So, I'd love it if if you've seen a structure that's worked well for your clients. Oh it's yeah, yeah. Well. So we yeah we have a we have a structured onboarding process
1: that 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 takes clients through very very specific steps. And they are discovery meetings, even maybe a second discovery meeting, and then there's a price pitch. And we always do it in three options. We find people are very successful with that high, middle, low uh, pitch. Uh, so so even the listeners, if you do nothing else, and you try to craft three options for every client that comes to you. Uh, you'll start making more money. Now, it'll be hard for you to do that. That's a really difficult habit and skill to learn. But man, you just to craft that high price uh, in that highest option will be a hard mental <laughs> brain. Uh, yeah, yeah, that price anchor, right, to come through that. And so if you're pitching those three options, and then we always pitch in person. That is That is just key and it slows everything down and it's hard. But uh, your clients are going to always have questions about your proposal. And I always want to be in the room when my clients have questions. I never, because they will answer their own questions and we don't want them to. We want to influence the answer to the question. So we always do it in person. Uh, and then we always do a kickoff meeting. Um, but in between the price pitch and the kickoff meeting, which is accepted, there's the contract the statement of the MSA or the statement of work, whatever you, however you approach that. And scoping that out is a key Uh, Is really a key, especially if you're pricing, if you're value pricing, if you're not scoping well in a contract, you're you're screwed, right? Because anytime you price up front before a service has begun, and you haven't also scoped that service as to what that price means, you have no component to to catch yourself, right? There's no typically in those situations, there's no time and billing, no hourly going on, no tracking around that, and so you don't know if you're getting off the rails on service. So you have to scope up front uh, when you price up front. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. So, sure. so with that in mind, what, what sort of expectations are you encouraging your, your clients to set before that proposal call, before that, that pitch basically?
1: Um, I, I, th- I think a lot of the expectations are set in the first couple of meetings before you ever show a price. Um, and, w- and we like to tell people in the very first meeting, see if you cannot talk about any kind of digital service at all. Like don't talk about any of your services uh, in that first discovery meeting. Um, and people might be like, well, what the heck am I gonna talk about? <laughs> well, it's turning, it's turning the discussion to who are they? Who do they want to become? Who do they not think they are? Uh, who will they become in two years? These, these exploratory strategic decisions really take that client to a new level of thinking. They start to think about themselves or envision themselves in different places that are, that are bigger than, and better than even they could have come and thought about themselves. And they will always attach that that journey to you if you're in those conversations with them. So to prepare, I always say people have to be prepared to be priced. So you don't hit them with these big value prices unless you've already shown them, you've already displayed what the journey is like to believe in you. Because you're because those kind of big value pitches have everything to do with do they trust you? Right, trust is a huge component to accepting a price because you're basically pricing. Belief in you. You're pricing faith, so to speak. You're saying, you haven't seen anything, but this price is, you know, 25 grand. And so you're kind of buying this without actually knowing if it's true or not. So you're asking them to have faith in you. And if you're going to dare to do that to a client, I think it's kind to them to be with them in a few meetings before that, to really get to know you, to share your story, to share who you are, part of your vision for your company and how you serve them and to dig out of the head of the client things they can't tell you themselves, um, which are their wants, right? So the clients come to you with their needs. They know we need a logo, we need a website. But what they can't do is tell you their wants often. And it's your job as the the consulting professional to help them understand and, and really believe in their wants. And the wants are where the value prices lie, not in the needs. The needs can be commoditized, but wants can't be. Because it's always that creative component of what the client wants to become. And you want to get those wants out of their mind. And that comes through just strategic questioning.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's that's so important. And yet so many agencies make it very one-sided and you know, check out our deck, check out our portfolio. Right. Yeah. So on in those initial meetings where you know so much uh, needs to be needs to be unveiled. So that's true. That's that's really really an important reminder to everyone. Um One sort of cliche question I'd like to ask to kind of finish things out is is what trends are you seeing, you know, either in your space agency world or the world at large that are interesting you that you think more people should be paying more attention to?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think um, especially in the, the profession of accounting, there's a lot of technology just like in, in the industry is really taking over. Uh, it's becoming a huge part of how we serve, how we serve better, how we serve more efficiently. and and all, that always comes, and i 've been doing this for you know way over twenty years it, Those kind of things typically come with fear too, like oh no, the machines are taking over our job uh, same type same type of commodity based work that we 're finding in design um, is that um, there's fear related to seeing a profession become commoditized and I I don't think that fear is real. I don't I don't think it has to be real. Um, I think it is true now that people feel feel the fear of what design, um, you know what, you know what the internet has has done to people and allowed people, you know, in China to sell logos for three bucks or whatever. Um, that that creates fear that you know computers are going to take over our life. But in in the world of service based. Consulting and service, humans will always need other humans to gain clarity in their life. And so there will always be high, high value involved in one human being in a meeting with another one. It's, it's really, it's a very, kind of a very sacred thing when one human agrees to be in a relationship with another one and have a meeting with them. That exchange of value is just extremely valuable. Um, and I think there's all there's prices that can always be applied to that. So. I think there'll always be people building businesses. I think design is, is definitely um, moving into a place of being a solution. Uh, you know, design, strategy, these digital agencies can really move into solving people's problems uh, because the world's just more complex, you know, with the internet, uh, you know, the persuasion of markets, how you display digital information online, how you walk people through digital flows of gaining trust, Agencies are perfectly poised to help clients walk through the complexity of persuading humans in ways that help them trust other humans. And that'll yeah. always be true.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think that's a great thing to finish on. And if anything, that premium's going up as there's more. For, for sure. Technology. For sure. That's so, true. It's a great observation. Uh, Jason, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, they can. I just go to
1: blummercpas.com, and that's B-L-U-M-E-R cpas.com you can hit us up at info at blummercpas.com too and just you know on the blog if you follow me too on twitter jason m blummer and blummer cpas is on facebook instagram uh linkedin you know hooking up with me on linkedin you're gonna you're gonna i do a lot of videos online just free videos about strategic words that we pick and and talk about how those apply to companies
0: so uh, all those ways are great jason thanks so much i feel like we could do another five episodes but i think that's that's good for now yeah thanks dan for having me on the show i appreciate it yeah take care